Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, your local Brisbane community radio station. Uh, my name is Andy and I'll be with you for the next hour with Ian. Hello everyone. Hello Andy. And Margaret. Hey Andy. Uh, Margaret is here in the studio because today on the show we are going to be talking about weapons expos, the weapons industry and the little uh, trade fairs that they put on to showcase their wares. There is one coming up in a couple of months' time in Brisbane called Land Forces. It's from the 1st to the 3rd of June. And part of the reason why we're talking about weapon expos is because uh, we're hoping that a few people who care about life and protecting it and not making money out of death are going to get together and uh, disrupt land forces. And so today on the show we have Zelda Grimshaw talking about how weapons manufactured in Australia have ended up uh, in the hands of the Indonesian military and special forces in West Papua, killing West Papuan civilians. As last week, there were another three uh, West Papuan civilians killed by Indonesian military. We also speak with Ian McIntyre, one of Australia's great folk historians, about uh, ADEX in 91, which was a big weapons expo, which was disrupted by people and it never happened again. Zelda was also at ADEX 91. So were you, Margaret. I was. I was, I was, at the, I was in the ultra-pacifist um, race course gate, blockading with our special star, star blockade. Um, and so we'll hear all about ADEX and how to stop a uh, weapons fair. Um, that's all coming up in the next hour, so stick around. We've got plenty, so I might jump straight into it and we'll hear from Zelda. Could you start off by introducing yourself? Yeah, I'm Zelda and I'm working on a campaign to disrupt land forces this year. Now, you've also been working to uh, research some of where Australian arms go that are manufactured in this country and sold by this country and you found some interesting information about uh, how they go to Indonesia. Can you tell us about this research you've been doing? Sure. There's a number of Australian companies who are exporting to Indonesia, weapons to Indonesia. Um, and Australia also exports to Saudi and UAE and the United States. So Australia is quite happy to export weapons to countries with terrible human rights records. Um, 
and Indonesia is, of course, um, sending huge amounts of military and riot police to West Papua, where they are used almost exclusively against civilians. Um, so one of the uh, worst offenders is a company called Thales, T-H-A-L-E-S. They're based in France, um, but they're one of the top 10 um, weapons companies. When I say top, I mean worst <laughs> weapons companies in the world. Um, and they've exported um, their Bushmaster vehicles or sold them to Indonesia for use by Kapasus, um, which is Indonesia's special forces, um, military special forces who are really notorious for extrajudicial killings and tortures and, you know, general terror. Many people would remember them uh, from the Sahara era and the East Timor um, repression. Yeah, totally. So during East Timor, Kapasas were already really feared. They were involved in the invasion of East Timor. And at that time, they were headed by a guy called um, Prabowo Subianto, who rose through the ranks to become the overall commander of Kapasas and who is now Indonesia's defence minister. So the same guy who headed the special forces during um, the terrible um, persecution of East Timor and, um, and who was put on trial for the murders, the disappearance and murders of activists in Jakarta in 1998 is now the defence minister. So he's the guy who now goes to all the weapons expos and says, oh, yes, oh, we'll have some of those tanks and we'll have some of those bombs and some of those aeroplanes. So Thales made nearly $10 billion in 2019. They're the eighth biggest defence um, salespeople in the world. And the Australian government keeps giving them money too. So... In, um, in 2018, our Department of Defence gave them a billion dollars to make bombs and bullets in Benalla here in Victoria. And in 2013, they sold um, some of their Bushmaster vehicles to Kapasas. And then in 2016, they sold another bunch of their Bushmaster vehicles to Kapasas. And these are vehicles that are manufactured in Australia. So they're made by the Thales Australia Division. And, and Thales has also entered into an agreement with the Indonesian government for their Bushmaster vehicle to be manufactured in Indonesia. So they have like a government-to-government -government, um, agreement or no, a weapons company-to-government agreement to um, manufacture their vehicles in Indonesia for use by Kapasas in West Papua and anywhere else where people want to protect their, their rights, their human rights and their ecological rights. Mm. So that's Thales. Um, are there other weapons manufacturers working in Australia that are selling weapons to be used in West Papua? Yeah, definitely. So Rheinmetall is another one. It's a German company. Um also a really major company and they make tanks 
and the bombs that go with tanks and the guns that go on the tanks to shoot the bombs. Um, they've got special names. They're not called bombs. They call them warheads and missiles and things like that. So Rheinmetall, um, yeah, their main manufacturing is not actually in Germany. They, they get around Germany's um, export rules by you know, shifting their manufacturing to other places. So a lot of their manufacturing happens in Sardinia in South Africa and some of it happens here. So they've sold more than 100 tanks to Indonesia's military, the TNR, and we've got yeah, evidence of those tanks rolling through the hills of West Papua. They're pretty scary, um, and the way they promote their, their weapons is also, for me, really creepy. So they say things like, um, you know, this mortar is easy to use, and this missile will um, is you know will last forever. I thought, well, it's indestructible. I thought, well, yeah, until you fire it. Like once you've used it, that's it. It's not, you, like, I don't know the whole the whole idea of manufacturing stuff that is designed to be destroyed. It's it's so gross and such a waste of resources. Not to mention the. Now, the end impacts, which are that, you know, wildlife gets maimed, um, forests and waterways get polluted sometimes for decades, and, and, of course, the immense human suffering that those weapons cause. Uh, so, yeah, Rheinmetall, more than 100 of their Leopard and Marder tanks have gone over to Indonesia. And Rheinmetall have, have managed to get $5 billion of Australian money um, towards their new centre of military, military vehicle centre of excellence in Brisbane. Um, and Rheinmetall and Thales will both be exhibiting at Land Forces in June. Uh, all the big weapons companies will be there. And, yeah, they're two of the companies we know for sure are selling to Indonesia um, whose weapons are getting used in West Papua. Um, third one that's a focus for our campaign is um, EOS, which stands for Electric Optic Systems. Uh, so they're actually an Australian company. Um, their manufacturing is in the ACT, in the outskirts of Canberra. And they manufacture targeting systems. So it's like this kind of, it's actually, they use gamer language. So they call it a plug and play interface. So their targeting system goes on the roof of your tank or your armored vehicle. And then you plug it into your console and you can target and shoot people just like you're playing a video game. Um, it's called a Remote Control Weapon System, RCWS. Um, and Indonesia has bought a number of those units um, and they've installed them on, on top of their tanks and their armoured weapons. And again, they are being used in West Papua. So um, it's pretty scary when a soldier can sit inside a, a weaponised vehicle that's mine resistant and they can literally like behave like they're playing a video game. Oh, and they've also got fire and forget missiles. So 
you press the button and then the missile does the rest of the work. You don't have to think. I don't know. And, and the EOS market, their um, targeting system as providing enhanced lethality. So they use all these, um, you know, sort of clever words to avoid saying actually killing, um, increased killing power, extra killing power, more killing, more deaths, more destruction. They talk about enhanced lethality. Um, yeah. So lethality is the preferred word in the military industry. Uh, so we know that um, an Indonesian delegation, trade delegation, visited EOS offices in 2018 and that that didn't result in sales of the system to the Indonesian military. But those sales are not listed as Australian exports, so we're wondering if they, you know, shipped them through their American subsidiary or... But the deal was definitely done here in Australia. And... That's why we're so keen to disrupt land forces in Brisbane um, because this is where these deals get done um, and the weapons companies, CEOs and the defence ministers and the trade delegations get together and there's this huge transfer of public money into weapons corporations' hands so that governments can buy weapons which ultimately get used on us.
on the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ. That is Ira Leckie there, West Papua musician based in Melbourne. Um, the song was called Full Freedom. We have been talking about West Papua, specifically how weapons manufactured in Australia are sold to the Indonesian military to be used on West Papuan civilians. Um, let's go back to talking to Zelda Grimshaw about that. Now, you mentioned when talking about Rheinmetall that they do manufacturing outside of Germany to get around German laws. So are, there, are other countries a bit stricter when it comes to who they'll export weapons to? Is Australia lax in this regard? Yeah, Australia seems pretty lax to me. I mean, the, um, the Defence Export Controls Act says that we won't export to any countries that... Um, you know, where there's demonstrated human rights violations, um, but we export to Saudi, we export to UAE, we export to Indonesia, we export to the United States. Mm. I mean, I would argue that any use of weapons is a human rights violation to start with. Like, there is no use of weapons that's consistent with upholding human rights. Um, But even if you didn't believe that, um, you know, Saudi's not really a shining light in in the right in the world of you know human rights neither is the united states um and indonesia's record in east timor in maluku in Aceh, and now in west papua uh is appalling um but australia you know is still happily exporting to all of those countries and scomo wants to increase our exports he wants australia to be in the top 10 of um, weapons exporters, we- weapons exporting nations in the world. So that's why he's pouring more of our money into developing um, weapons sales in Australia. Mm. And the information, I mean, you've dug up this information of uh, which where Australian manufactured weapons are going. Is this information freely available or is it obscured at all in trying to cover up where these weapons are going it's not it's not obscured exactly um but it's not um it's not revealed exactly either so i mean i was able to to find that information um but if you go to the publicly available um like what Australia publishes about its exports. For instance, the EOS exports to Indonesia are not listed. Um, and that's definitely an Australian company. It's their Australian weapon systems and they're definitely landing in Indonesia So, and were paid for. So um, um, I found that information by going to Indonesian sites, Indonesian language sites. I didn't find that information anywhere in in English or on Australian um, websites. Um, weapons companies brag about the sales they make usually, so you know that information is not that hard to find. Um, but they won't talk about how much um, money they made from it or, um, or which branches of the army um, it went to. They certainly won't talk about the human rights um, implications of their weapon sales and the end impacts of their weapon sales so um that's more that's where you have to more look at other human rights advocates and um 
people on the ground, um, people's social media accounts and people's personal blogs is where I got a lot of the evidence of what the impacts were in West Papua. Mm. Um, and so you've mentioned Land Forces, the Weapons Expo coming up in Brisbane at the start of June. Um, so for you knowing this information, how does that link to Land Forces and why then is it important to resist that? Well, we know that Australian weapons companies um, or companies with, with branches, big branches manufacturing in Australia are exporting to Indonesia and that those weapons end up in West Papua. Um, and, you know, I care about West Papuans. I think a lot of Australians do. Um, there's, like, you know, the TNT and I seem to be murdering two or three civilians a week there and, you know, whole villages are vacating. There's a huge amount of internally displaced people in West Papua. Um, but, I mean, there are so many reasons to resist weapons and resist war. War causes famine, war causes refugees, um, war is peak toxic masculinity, um, war causes climate chaos, and the, the military are the largest emitters of carbon, war uh, weapons enforce resource extraction, um, which is what they're doing in West Papua, that's why there's so much military in West Papua, is to protect um, the mines and the palm oil plantations and the oil rigs and to make sure that investors get the money that they're looking for and that Indigenous people are successfully displaced from from their land. Um, so weapons are used to enforce resource extraction all over the world and we've got that ongoing story in Australia as well. And then there's the militarisation of police that's increasing everywhere um, and that we're also seeing in Australia with police getting military-grade weapons and surveillance technology. So we know that in the end, whether we're in West Papua or whether we're in Brisbane, in the end, those weapons are meant for us. I think we have every reason to um, resist weapon sales and to say, you know, that, that $300 billion that the government are planning to spend on weapons, um, we want that to fix the climate emergency. We want that to fix homelessness. We want that to transition to renewable energy. Like, we want that for better health outcomes. Like, there's, there's so many, you know, constructive ways we could spend that money instead of giving it to weapons corporations. And land forces and other weapons expos like that are the primary place that these deals get done. It's also where you'll find the CEOs of these weapons companies and all of the defence ministers of the Asia-Pacific region, including our own um, and, you know, military officials, all in one place at one time. So I feel like land forces... Um, 21 is like a really amazing opportunity for us um, to speak truth to that power. Mm. We really get them all together in one place like that. Um, so it's, yeah, 1st to the 3rd of June, but we're asking people to converge from the 28th so that we'll have the weekend to kind of prepare and plan and... Um, 
I hope everybody comes and right. we have a wonderful festival of disruption at Land Forces 21. Okay, thanks very much, Zelda. Thanks, Andy. Papua Isisifo Kualava Tahi leo tahi oloto Hey, I only to laugh or no Tino Otela Fafineta mighty uma Mawalo ate halotonga Here on the Paradigm Shift on Fortable Z, 
102.1 FM. It is coming up to 12.30, halfway through the show. That there was Tevaka with Papua Isisifo, a bit of uh, Papuan solidarity from some of their Samoan and New Zealand um, Pacifica neighbours. Um, we're all the Pacifica Papuan songs this morning so far. Um and I am here, I'm here with Ian and Margaret. Before that, we were talking with Zelda Grimshaw about uh, Australian weapons being sold to um, West Papua or to Indonesia to use in West Papua on civilians. Um, if you follow the news, which there isn't very much of out of Papua, foreign journalists are generally banned. But if you do follow what happens, there's a never-ending stream of civilians being killed by Indonesian forces using those weapons um, and we're talking about land forces, the weapons expo coming up in June when some of these companies that sell these weapons will be displaying their products Go on Margie, what do you got to say? <laughs> well I reckon people should come and join us to disrupt it, we've got a, a, a new website, Disrupt Land Forces and we're going to, we're already started to go to, around to the weapons companies and do small disruptive actions, uh, we've got a map in Brisbane there are you know, obviously there are dozens, but there's a dozen obvious major sites of weapons corporations, big ones, small ones, medium Yeah, I saw sites. a picture of you, your mob out there. It was somewhere at Pink and Bar, wasn't it? Yeah, Nair at Pink and Bar. We stopped the uh, people getting to work there for an hour last week. And, we, you know, this is a place people can join us. We're going to have an intro uh, to land forces, intro to the weapons trade in Brisbane and the weapons trade in Australia on Sunday if people want to sign up at that in disruptlandforces.org page, uh, they can join us and get involved in these small disruptive actions. But we're doing other things as well. We're we're getting out to markets and events to say this event is coming up. It's right in the middle of uh, Brisbane at uh, South Brisbane. And um, we just want people to know what's going on because at the moment there's an explosion of money being pushed, pumped. We say it's like a fire hose pushing that money into the uh, to community into into these corporations into these weapons corporations which then of course mostly siphon it out the country into their sort of private pockets and all the while as we go about our daily life in brisbane there's war going on around the world conflict and the weapons for it are being made in australia being marketed for here you know the same way as other products are marketed by advertisements to kind of create artificial demand weapons companies are always advertising oh you need this weapon you need this weapon um it is one part of the thing that keeps the global conflict rolling on. That's right, and you, you sort of need this conflict. You know, that's what they also, you know, they tell us we need the, this weapon, but they also tell us we need this conflict. And you find them uh, actually funding the think tanks, which then tell the government, oh, no, that's a definitely a conflict. You're going to have to arm for that conflict. And they're just there in the background pumping the money in um, to make us think we're always on edge and that, that there's, we're just one step away from some terrible... Uh, disgusting conflict but actually most of these weapons they get sold they get flown around by um by jet pilots they get um you know practiced on but they actually you know apart from what zelda said with the small arms uh the small munitions the tanks they get used to actually kill people in papua but a lot of the bigger stuff it just gets bought and sold as a way of shifting the money from us the government's the, it's the most direct way to get money into the corporate into the private pocket 
So Land Forces is in June. Yeah. Now, who who's organising it? Who is it a collaboration between army, industry, government? What? Who are the actual people we got to target? Well, the major sponsor is the Queensland government. The second major sponsor is the army, but then you've got the corporations that are really pushing, pushing. So the the major sponsors are Ryan Metal, EOS. Uh, they they're right up there. Uh, Deutsche Bahn, Schenker, the, the logistics, they're the sponsors, right? But the, the Queensland government is the major sponsor. Uh, they would have paid a lot of money to try and get it here. Um, and they've got it there right in South Brisbane in their facility at the conference centre. Hmm. You know, for me, it's a bit of a time warp because in years ago when they wanted to show, you know, their support for the military they'd actually get the military into the centre of town um, and they would show you the tanks, the aeroplanes. But now it's all these, like, remote-controlled weapons systems. It's become a very a, a technological fest, you know, where to enthuse people, you, they even, like, separate you from the terrible, you know, violence that these these things can do yeah it's it's very much in the video game realm yeah and they they decontextualize it so they talk about it as if it's it's really just an interesting mission that people go on or a lot of it's around this idea of a, you're on a really interesting mission it's very interesting and very educative and you're going to just solve some new problem the problem is this is an enormous waste of our human capacity it's enormous waste of our actual resources um, and it's it's contributing massively to climate change. Mm, we might uh, go on. Ian spoke about in the display of military might in Brisbane. You've got this clip from the archives here, Ian, from yeah. 1977. Well, I might put it in context. Um, what happened was uh, in on the 3rd of December 1977, there was the biggest display of military might in Brisbane streets since the Second World War. And, I mean serious tanks rolling down and ploughing up Queen Street, military aircraft above, hundreds if not thousands of troops marching down the street to clapping crowds. Um, now this was put on by an, a showman, an entre- entrepreneur by the name of Harry M. Miller and he was later jailed for fraud with a ticket fraud for some show. But um, at this time he was really close to the Queensland government and they wanted to put on their big arms support display and they rolled it down but the irony was 50 metres away and only two hours later 210 people were arrested uh, trying to march for democratic rights so the very things that we were opposed to you know, mining and export of uranium, the use of military, the the uh, the refusal of the government to give people their rights. We marched for that, and about three thousand people marched out of the square, and the cops just came up and cleaned us all up. I spent the night in the watch house. So, I mean, that's you know, that's where we're ended. You know, you you the people can the people resist? And we've got a clip here of of that and some little songs that went with it. So maybe we play it and see what you reckon. The morning of December 3rd, Brisbane witnessed the Queen Elizabeth Silver Jubilee Spectacular organised by Harry M. Miller. 
The parade involved over 3,000 troops, a display of military might unparalleled in Brisbane since the war. This procession held up Brisbane traffic for more than two and a half hours. At 10.30, a rally for the right to march and the right to organise was held. I will leave you young people. I'm impossible to march. I'm just on 75. After a long discussion, a resolution to march was put and carried overwhelmingly. The decision is to march. Further speeches ensued and at the end of the rally people marched once again into Albert Street to be encircled by 700 police. While people were being arrested in Albert Street, a plainclothes police officer was mistakenly accosted, taken about five metres and then released. Yes, that was uh, archival footage from nearly 50 years ago of um, what people were doing then to try to stop the kind of things that the government was putting up in front of us. Now, that was from the Civil Liberties Coordinating Committee film. People can actually watch the vision with that. It's called If You Don't Fight, You Lose. It's on the uh, YouTube channel Bush, Workers Bush Telegraph. And um, that song there at the end was Oh Freedom, a great, great civil rights song, actually. We've heard a few of them this, this morning. Actually, it was one next door that Quentin played by Nina, Nina Simone earlier. So, um, so yeah, that's, that, that's by the Golden Gospel Singers. So there it is. A bit of history for you. Another bit of history is the ADEX Arms Fair in 1991, which was shut down and never held again by... 
um, a group of blockaders from around the country. I spoke to Ian McIntyre this morning. Ian's written a book about ADEX, another veteran of it, and um, we spoke about what happened then and why it's relevant for land forces. Could you start by introducing yourself? My name's Ian McIntyre. I was somebody who attended ADEX 91 and I've uh, helped document um, some stuff about the blockade since. Yeah, so you did in fact uh, write a book um, about ADEX and the blockade of it called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. To start off with though, can you tell us what was ADEX? Yeah, so ADEX was um, the Australian International Defence Exhibition and this was, I guess, an arms fair that was uh, being run in the late 80s and early 90s. It was uh, a two-year... Uh, every, happened every two years. And essentially it was brought together... Uh, basically a whole bunch of weapons manufacturers and um, other people involved in selling weapons and brought them together in the nation's capital out at uh, what was known as the National Exhibition Centre back then, uh, which was a big sort of conference centre. And, yeah, basically hundreds of different companies would gather and it was sort of their their big um, powwow and... People would come from all over the world to check out the weapons they had for sale. And I guess it was held in the context of there was a push at the time from the ALP, then ALP government, federal government, to... They were kind of hoping that arms manufacturing would basically expand in Australia and become a bigger industry within Australia. So this particular kind of arms selling conference was kind of tied in with that. Now, the Australian arms industry didn't really grow in the way they expected, and a lot of that was down to international factors, basically, with um, the end of the Soviet Union. Um, there was, uh, for a period, a whole lot of um, disarmament happening in the former Soviet Union, and so the I guess the world market for weapons was kind of flooded with all these former Soviet weapons and so that made it very hard for the Australian um, companies to get in as well as sort of there's a bunch of other factor, uh, factors to do with the manufacturing industry at the time but certainly there was this push from the government to expand things. Now, there was also a very strong resistance from Australian people to the Australian arms industry expanding, and the blockade of ADEX was a good example. And so your book is mostly about this mass uh, blockade of this arms expo. Yeah, so in... um in 89, there was a, a smaller protest outside of ADEX, um, but really that the organisers, sort of their intention, uh, as sort of described in the book, and um, was that they would sort of, they wanted to kind of, they, they knew they didn't have enough time to kind of shut ADEX 89 down, but they figured by having a protest it would kind of put the event on the map, I guess, <laughs> for the sort of Australian activist community. And then between 89 and 91, 
uh, the people who organised the blockade um, travelled all over Australia um, sort of trying to bring together this big network and there was a bunch of other groups, uh, peace groups and so forth also doing the same thing. So that was quite effective in terms of mobilising um, people across a broad spectrum, sort of from Catholic justice activists and the Catholic Church um, through to the kind of far left um, and uh, all sorts of people in between. Mm. And the uh, organisers, so they sort of organised this blockade, um, but uh, I suppose one of, there were a couple of factors other than, you know, the fact that they kind of reached out to such a big network and, and kind of, in a way, hyped 8X91 as, you know, the place to be, that, you know, we were really going to get these arms dealers. Uh, I think there was a few factors that helped them mobilise such a big group. Um, you basically had the first Gulf War happen between uh, the two arms conferences and, uh, you know, there was a a lot of people protesting against the Gulf War and that kind of put the issue of Australian militarism and um, the arms industry into people's minds. And also the first Gulf War was a big shift because Australia hadn't been involved in a conflict like that really since Vietnam. At the same time, um, forest blockades were happening in a big way, um, particularly Northeast Forest Alliance. So, um, and some of those like Chalundai have been quite successful. So there was sort of a, a group of people around the kind of forest scene. And I guess ADEX, the conference was sort of turned into a kind of a unifying symbol of kind of waste and greed and cruelty. And, and the blockade was very much pushed in that way. So it was sort of, you know, whatever issue you're into, it ties into militarism and war and nationalism and arms dealing in some way you know if you want to protect the environment that ties in if you're concerned about um, women's rights globally that ties in so all these different issues could be could be tied and you know here's this target all these um hundreds if not thousands of um you know arms dealers and and military officers and all the world's worst governments and all the rest of it, they're all going to have representatives at this place. So, you know, it really made it a, a kind of focal point for for people's um, protest activity. Mm. We are talking with Ian McIntyre here, Australian protest folk historian about the 8X 1991 blockade, which stopped that... Um, stop that weapons expo from ever happening again in the context of land forces let's go back to listening to ian so uh 15 years after the 8x conference you uh wrote a book about it obviously thinking that this history was important um why was that what's important about this history that should be remembered yeah, quite a few things. I mean, essentially, this was... The ADEX protest was successful in many ways, and therefore I thought it was worth looking uh, back at what made it successful. 
at the time that I put the book together, it's basically an oral history, so it's a whole lot of different people's um, voices, and I tried to make it as sort of varied and representative of the different groups who were involved in the protest as possible. Uh, around that time, there was going to be the first kind of open arms fair, basically since ADEX, happening in South Australia. So it just seemed like a good time to kind of revisit the protest. Uh, I guess on a personal level, because I'd taken part in the ADEX blockade, it was also... Um, you know, I was sort of interested in working through some of the things that I'd experienced. Interested in working through some of the things that I'd experienced there and so forth. So, I mean, in terms of being successful, the what happened was the... Um, the conference was meant to run, I guess, over four or five days... But the, and I, I guess the, in terms of kind of counter protest strategies, basically the police and the organisers of ADEX uh, didn't expect, expect people to turn up before the thing started. And people got there um, quite a bit before it started <laughs> and started um, blockading days basically before the conference was was meant to begin and which meant that all the entry points um to the exhibition center were shut down uh and that meant that basically the people running the conference couldn't get their couldn't get their you know pictures and tanks and whatever in, into the site um so the, the whole space was sort of shut down eventually there was well we don't really know exactly how many people were there because People came for sort of varying amounts of time, but at least I would say a thousand, upwards of a thousand people blockading. The exhibitors couldn't get their stuff in. Um, in the end, they brought in a whole bunch of police who kind of um, had to cut a hole in the fence to create their own gate. And they never got all of the exhibitions in and some of the exhibitors didn't exhibit and some of the people who were coming, the attendees, didn't bother turning up because even though the police kind of were able to get people through the gates eventually, uh, anybody who was attending was still facing, like, picket lines of people. And so once the, uh, once the exhibition opened you basically had round-the-clock picketing and that kind of um, took the form of, yeah, basically people lining up, blocking entrance, police often being lined up, things getting very hot and then the police being given the order to basically smash through the picket and then they would smash up the picket uh, and then, you know, the picket would reform and, and all of that would start over again. So, so the event was majorly disrupted of all the coverage it got um you know it became a major media story all around australia which sort of informed people that hey there's this growing arms industry and you know there's these people who quite openly have an event every year where they celebrate what they do um protesters were uh, you know generally maligned in the media there was kind of crazy stories the police put out about, you know, um, people throwing acid-filled condoms as if you could have acid 
like in a condom and it wouldn't go all over your hands or whatever. But anyway, they ignored that logic. Um, you know, they found a spear gun in someone's car, so suddenly be, that became, you know, oh, the protesters were wheeling spear guns, this sort of thing. Um, but sort of oddly enough, that kind of negative publicity which made uh, as as um, one of the ADEX organisers called the protest, protesters thugs and terrorists, that kind of backfired because the ACT government had already said that they didn't want... They'd already said before ADEX 91 that they didn't want, want to have another one of these events. They didn't... You know, they just didn't want to be involved. So... After, because there was so much kind of negative publicity, both about the protesters but about the event, the ADEX people, they tried to rename their conference Oztech. And, uh, yeah, they basically couldn't find anyone who was willing to take the event on because uh, all the other states were, were, you know, like, well, it's going to cost us heaps in policing, um, you know, we're going to get all these violent, crazy people coming here who, who weren't violent or crazy, but, you know, that was the image that was projected. So pretty much ADEX 91 meant that there were no open arms fairs uh, held in Australia again again for quite some years and then yeah we got to uh 2008 and uh they were trying it on again mm. which brings us to land forces which is happening this june in brisbane how do you think that history influences how we should respond to this arms fair happening in brisbane yeah well i guess the context you know is, is different now to 1991 as it was in 2008 when we were uh, when we managed to stop uh, the arms fair in South Australia I, I think there's some basic sort of lessons come out of it I think it's definitely worth putting up uh, or, or proposing a blockade and uh, if that blockade or the threat of a blockade basically can make uh, the people putting on the conference or the people who need to provide the policing and security in order to make the conference happen, if it can impress on them that the political and financial and other costs are too great, then you've got a chance of getting it called off. So in 2008, um, you know, they were going to have this... Uh, new open arms fairs. So, as I say, you know, there have been meetings of arms dealers and, and manufacturers, but they sort of had to go back into the shadows after 8X91. So they were starting to come out of the shadows in 2008. And, um, yeah, so they were having this conference in South Australia, but um, because a new group, some of whom had been involved in ADEX 91, uh, plus other people, basically pledged to have big blockade. And because it wasn't that long after the G20 protests in Melbourne, which, um, you know, had seen uh, quite a bit of chaos and sort of um, so forth, the um, South Australian government and the police sort of looked at it and they decided, and I don't know that they would have needed this many people, but they decided they would need at least, you know, five or 600 police to make sure this event went ahead. And on the basis of, the basis of that, they decided it was just too expensive. So they turned around and said to um, 
the um, organisers, you're going to have to come up with the money and then the organisers were like, well, we can't afford to pay for those kind of policing costs. So in 2008, that's how we managed to stop that arms fair. Um, so I guess there's a lesson there in terms of if a blockade can... Um, you know, there's, there's certain events, I think, where the state or big business will pay whatever it takes to make them go ahead, but then there's other events where they won't, and thus far the history of arms fairs has been that they haven't been willing to to kind of spend exorbitant amounts of money. Uh, I guess the other thing is is that, um, you know, by having a protest or a blockade, I mean, it's very important just, just to, you know as with most protests and blockades, to try and let the world know what's happening and, and that this kind of thing is is happening and that, um, you know, a substantial number of people see it as unacceptable. And there's a whole lot of other things that, that blockades can, can achieve too. Okay, thanks very much, Ian. And if people do want to read um, your book about ADEX, how can they do so? Yeah, so if they go to commonslibrary.org, which is an activist resource repository, and they just type in ADEX, A-I-D-E-X, or, um, yeah, if they type type that in, then uh, they'll find the book. There's also a radio documentary and a whole bunch of photos. All right. Thanks very much, Ian. No worries. That is Ian McIntyre there talking about ADEX 91, um, famous blockade um, of an arms expo. There's another one coming out. Do you want to give it one final plug, Margaret, before we go? Yeah, get involved. Join us. We're going to meet on Sunday at 12 at 175 Vulture Street and uh, plan another disruptive action for next week. And you, and there's a lot of things to be done, meetings, markets, reaching out to uh, people affected by war. Landforces.org is the website where you can find Disrupt out more. Disruptthelandforces.org, sorry. And uh, Wage Peace as well, um, the organisation where you can find out info about that. And um, it's, let's get involved. Um, it'll be a good time. You might be in 20 years' time. 30 years time talking about being involved just like um Ian McIntyre just like these guys talking you know people a formative experience we were there and a display of people power over the power of weapons and guns we're going to go out with one final song Thugs and Terrorists Ian said is what they were described as in the media it also inspired the name of this Australian protest folk punk band Thugs and Terrorists this is Media Lies a bit of a trip back into the archive see you next week thanks Andy see ya
Business says, country doesn't exist, but the police 